here's where we're headed today once we finish up last week's. Today we want to talk about the how of apologetics. And there's a lot to say about the how. Christians, as you can imagine, disagree about how we should go about doing things, including apologetics. Before we get started, I have a book giveaway here. Nathan Business's Forerunners of the Faith. Dr. Business was my church history professor, and this is like Fundamentals of the Faith. It's, a, it's kind of a workbook style, uh, but not so many fill in the blanks as maybe Fundamentals of the Faith. And so this is your teacher's guide, so all the blanks are already filled in, okay? Don't get the other one and cheat now. Uh, but really, if you just read this as the teacher's guide with the blanks filled in like this, you're going to learn a short summary overview of church history. So I think this just came out this year or last year. Last year, we got it at Shepherd's Conference. So for the giveaway, don't answer if you've recently got a giveaway. Um, what verse of the Bible do we look to to get an explanation of apologetics or a short uh, command that we should give a defense? Give a defense. What verse of the Bible is that? Just gave me the book and chapter. All right. Oh, Derek, you got a book recently. Come on now. <laughs> it's been a year. Okay, Britta got a book recently then. First Peter 3, 15. All right, good. Got to keep those books away from Derek. You want that. There you go. Okay, well, let's open in prayer, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Just to look into the Word, consider these verses that uh, tell us what we should be doing and how we should do it. Help us to have discernment as we speak with unbelievers. Help us to love them enough to tell them the truth and give us wisdom as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's finish our slides from last week here. Um, last week, we were just talking about what is apologetics. And after giving some definitions, we've been looking at key verses. The first key verse, and the one we spent the most time on, is 1 Peter 3.15. And really, the, the verses around it, you could um, go 3.14 to 17, just to cover the context. Then we looked at Jude 1.3, contend for the faith. So Peter says, make, give a defense for the hope that is within you, but do it with the spirit of gentleness. Do it with the fear of God as you do it. Uh, Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is one faith, one doctrine, and we need to contend. It doesn't mean you go out looking for arguments, but when presented with a situation, when presented with a spiritual attack that's by logic and reason, somebody's trying to destroy uh, Christianity, at least as best they can, uh, in your mind you are going to think of what to say and you're going to contend now for the faith with your mouth, not your fists, not your weapons. You are going to contend with a good biblical argument. Now, the key verse number three is where we stopped last week. And this expands it a bit more. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So again, the idea here is we're not fighting physically. We're not getting so mad at our opponent that we're going to get into a fist fight or start a war. That's not the idea, Paul says. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So there's, a, there's something that God has given us, His Spirit, that gives us the ability to now go out and tear down fortresses, tear down strongholds. These are spiritual strongholds, not of the devil. We're not going around casting out demons and we're not going around binding Satan and all that silliness. No, we're destroying speculations, he says. Speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So with the Word of God, we're using that because that is the most powerful tool. It's really the only thing that will do this. We're using the Word of God to tear down the strongholds that someone else has built up in their mind against Christianity. They've built up a speculation, a philosophy. They've built up something that they think really puts Christianity to shame. They think they have such a great argument to show that Christ never came or that God doesn't exist and so on. And Paul says, we have been given divine weapons. It's called the Bible. And we can use it. When Paul preaches the gospel, he's destroying speculations of the world, lofty things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. Now remember, everybody knows God, and we'll come back to that over and over. Everybody knows there is a God, but they deny it. They suppress it. And 
they think they know better than God. And they think they can invent the gods of their own mind and of, of the world as they choose. And Paul says, we're going to go out and we're going to proclaim the truth. And that's what tears down these fortresses. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the only way to live. The true way to live is with every thought subject to Christ, being obedient to Christ, starting with, of course, faith and repentance and continuing on throughout the Christian life. And so he's talking here about what he's doing as he goes out to preach and and work with people one-on-one that probably brought up many questions to him. And as he goes into the synagogues and reasons with the Jews, he is tearing down what they've built up for their stronghold. To, to, to resist God, to suppress the truth of God, you have to build quite an argument in your own mind, don't you? You have to lie to yourself. You have to listen to the lies of others. It takes time to build that. It takes uh, liberal schools and, and colleges and books and a secular and scientific and all of these things to build up in your mind this idea that God doesn't exist or that He's not the God of the Bible or that he didn't send Christ. So that's quite a stronghold. And Satan is very happy about that. You've built this little wall of defense against the gospel. But when the word comes in, the Bible says it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it pierces to the heart, that it's a flame of fire, and that it will purify. And so the word of God is what we use. That's our divine weapon. Uh, other translation, this speculation idea, other translations talk about obstacles. They say uh, translated as false arguments and reasonings, or the King James just imaginations. And while speculations is a little, it's more literal, uh, I like the imaginations because it really comes down to just an imagination. People just make up stuff. You probably have been talking to unbelievers and they just, they just make up things. There's no foundation, there's no ultimate source of truth, which means you can make up whatever you want. MacArthur Study Bible says these are thoughts, these are ideas, these are reasonings, philosophies, and false religions. So all of that is included in this word speculations. Uh, whether it's, it's a false religion or a philosophy, those are often what we're dealing with. They're both speculations, they're, they're imaginings. What does it mean to take every thought captive? I like what David Garland says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, Christ's prisoners who have been snatched from Satan's clutches can take the offensive and capture others for the gospel. So we were once prisoners. We were once in our own strongholds that were built up by ourselves. The gospel broke through. God broke through. He rescued us out of that. And really, we thought it was our stronghold, but it was serving Satan's cause. Now we're free, and we can go back into those fortresses and take others out of it, take them captive for Christ. Paul intends to take them prisoner, which paradoxically is the only way to be set free from Satan. Their thoughts need to come under the lordship of Christ and to be liberated from the captivity of Satan. So what is apologetics? It's giving a defense for the faith. It's contending for the faith. But it's also destroying these philosophical and false religion strongholds and and taking people out of that. Now, ultimately, we don't do that. That's God. That's the Spirit. But God uses us. We're the means. We're the tool. Without us, it doesn't happen. God uses us. He's, he's predestined, you could say, the good work of evangelism and apologetics. And so you should uh, seek to learn as much as you can on being an effective tool for the Lord. And taking every thought captive is going to require some study. It's going to require some preparation. All right, last key verse here of the four. 1 Timothy 6, 20-21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it. Guard it. Guard this gospel, this doctrine, this teaching that I've given to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter. How how do you guard it? You avoid attacks from the world, empty chatter, which is just meaningless words about arguing about nothing, and the opposing arguments. This is the, the speculations that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. The opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So this is how he finishes out First Timothy. Think about that. The last words are guarded, and here's what you're guarding it against. There's a lot of worldly and empty chatter. 
there's a lot of silliness about what the Bible's saying. And people just come up with their own views all the time. You know, I think there's multiple ways of salvation. And I think uh, God is a God of whoever I want Him to be. And I think, and I think, and I think. And that's just empty chatter, Paul says. It isn't, it's not biblical. It doesn't go anywhere. And then there's arguments that are against the gospel, that are viciously against the gospel. And it's falsely called knowledge. People think, oh, this is great knowledge. This is great wisdom. I'm going to study the wisdom of the ancients. Now, you know, we, we've sort of gone through this cycle as a Western society. We, we were once pagan, and then we were Christian, and then we were sort of a Christian lost in, in works, righteousness Christians, and then uh, the Reformation came about, and we had the justification by faith alone proclaimed again. And all these Western nations often took that on, and England took that around the world. And now we're so wise and we're so intelligent that we're going to return to paganism. And we're going to put up the pagan temples again, like they have in, in Iceland. And they have a pagan temple that you can go and worship all the Norse gods. And there's uh, the temple of Satan. And there's all these pagan temples everywhere in America. Well, that's supposedly knowledge, but Paul says that's falsely called knowledge. And uh, a, kind of an interesting thing is the original word here for knowledge in Greek meant what we would say is science. Not, not science in our modern experimental uh, idea, but, but science is just knowledge. Science is knowledge. Now we have the practice of science, which is to try to figure out that. But it is interesting that whether it's philosophy or scientism, which yesterday in our men's leadership, Frank did a great little session on scientism, this idea that people who study science and proclaim it know all things, and they can disprove God. And they can somehow elevate science over the Bible. Uh, Paul says, guard against such things. Because he says, some people, some people in the church, some people who profess to be Christians, have gone after such things and been led astray. They've left the faith. They've gone so far outside of the Christian beliefs that they're not even saved, he says, meaning they weren't saved to begin with. They've gone astray from the faith. So what's been entrusted to Timothy? The gospel. He says guard that. The doctrine of scripture. What is falsely called knowledge. Anything that people think is a good explanation of why we're here. An explanation of creation. All of these false ideas that we have today. And some have gone astray from the faith. Well, that's the four key verses. Uh, we started last week and, and went through them. Let's just look now at the difference between evangelism and apologetics. Some will combine these two and say they're exactly the same. They're really a different uh, word. They're a different meaning. Evangelism, of course, at its root is proclaiming. It's more offense. You're proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And really the goal is to show people that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And you don't really have to, to go too far with that. Usually people know that, whether they admit it or not. The Bible says they know that. They know there's a God. They know they're in sin. You've got to use Scripture, though, uh, to make that real, to make that uh, something that pierces, the Bible says, their hearts. And then provide, of course, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's evangelism. What's apologetics? Defending the truth of the gospel and of Scripture. So one's an offensive and one's a defensive. But often they are used at the same time. Obviously, if you have an unbeliever... What good does it do to spend hours doing a defense and never telling them the truth of the gospel? You're just playing a Mr. Argument um, all day long and not helping them to come to faith. Evangelism is an opportunity to witness to someone and share the gospel. You don't begin with a defense. If you're going out to evangelize somebody, you're probably not going to knock on their door and say, tell me all the false knowledge that you believe. What are the false philosophies that you have subscribed to? Right? You're just going to evangelize. So you proclaim the gospel and don't respond to non-existent questions. This is something we fall into sometimes. That only raises doubts about the faith. Don't, don't say, I want to tell you the good news of Jesus, but I know you probably have imbibed uh, scientism and uh, philosophy of the world and uh, works righteousness. You're, you're answering questions they haven't brought up yet. You don't know what they believe. Uh, apologetics comes about when they bring those questions up. You're evangelizing, and they say, you know, I can't believe that. 
Because I grew up thinking that you have to contribute to your salvation. You have to do good works. And God will look at those. Or I grew up believing in another God. Or many gods. Or I grew up, they might say, in the Mormon church. That believes I can become a God if I'm good enough. That's when you respond with apologetics. But if you're evangelizing, please, please don't start off with a defense of something they've never attacked yet. Uh, Because you'll waste a lot of time doing that too. You'll spend an hour talking to them about something that they've never even heard of. So let's summarize. Defending the faith depends on the power and ability of God, not man. Which is always going to bring us back to using God's word. It depends upon God, not man. Defending the faith is part of evangelism. Or we could say closely connected. or in, It's often in tandem, we'll say, with evangelism. We're fulfilling the Great Commission as we apply reasons for our faith. If you start with apologetics for whatever reason, please finish with evangelism. If you're evangelizing and get questioned, then you're going to do apologetics. Three, defending the faith is primarily about defending the gospel. Don't always go off into the weeds. Uh, How many angels can fit on the, uh, what is it, tip of a pin? That's more philosophy than anything. Uh, Let's stick with the gospel, but, but realize, don't be like a lot of people and say, well, you know, creation has nothing to do with the gospel. Really? Then who created? And and if there wasn't an Adam, how can you have a second Adam? So it is connected to the gospel. Don't think just because it's it's about creation means you don't have to ever touch on it. Christ is the beginning and the end in all aspects of life, including apologetics. Don't set the Lord aside. Remember, Peter said, sanctify the Lord in your heart before you give a defense, but obviously during that as well. And defending the faith in a God-honoring way must be done with gentleness, reverence, and a good conscience. Your job is not to pound them with your beautiful arguments and just make them so mad they'll never listen again. Your goal is is not to be the most awesome-looking apologist in the world with your arguments. That's pride. The goal is to bring them to a knowledge of Christ. We know God's going to do that through the Spirit if He chooses, But you're to be that vessel. And so don't think it's about you and making yourself look smart. Here's what Scott Oliphant says. The battle belongs to the Lord is is the name of his little book on this. Since Christ is Lord and the battle is his, we must always be ready to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must use the weapons, not of this world, but of the Lord. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ as we demolish the arguments with gentleness and reverence of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They, they worship created things rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he's putting all these verses together here. And the battle does belong to the Lord, not just in David's day, but the battle belongs to the Lord when it comes to uh, answering and defending the faith. So why do we have to be concerned about apologetics? What are the reasons we need to be skilled apologists. Well, the world is becoming more and more secularized, increasing secularism. They say there's really no room for God. Get God out of the schools, get God out of the government, get God out of the public eye. Now the idea is freedom of religion. Really, that's just you can believe what you want in your mind, which isn't really needed. You don't need to put that in a constitution. Everybody can believe what they want in their mind. Freedom of religion is the ability to go and practice it and not be persecuted. But today, Secularists say, you can believe whatever you want. Just don't practice it. Don't show it. Don't tell others about it. And so we need to get ready for that. Secularism is already replacing the Judeo-Christian worldview. Although uh, today there's also this new atheism. The challenge of Richard Dawkins, Samuel Harris, and others who view Christianity and religion as a plague. They're not just saying, Christians leave us alone. They're actually coming out and attacking Christianity and writing books about it and saying that it's a plague upon the world. They're not just quiet atheists that existed in the 1800s, early 1900s. They're saying Christianity is bad. Also, thirdly, the homosexual transgender issue, the agenda that's out there, the public acceptance of it is growing at a rapid pace. And what are you going to do when somebody says, that's why I can't become a Christian? I believe this. Or you Christians are are bigots. 
And now there's uh, laws in our society that protects this idea that people should live against God in rebellion all the time. Everybody have those? Just writing them down. Fourthly, there's the idea of absolute truth being rejected. Postmodernism is what that's called. It's saying that there is no absolute truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's fine. Everybody has their own truth. There is no absolute truth, is what the postmodernist says. And so we have a whole generation that's already grown up in postmodernism. And now they're coming out into the world and they're teaching schools and they're teaching in colleges and they're teaching their little ones in the home to hold that view. Also, pop culture. I mean, all of these are, are coming against Christianity. Pop culture, self-centered, it's very immoral. This Hollywood selfie environment, this idea that we're to promote immorality and we're to obsess over our looks and how we feel. That all comes from Disney, that comes from the pop culture. You know, there's this new show now on, uh, it's about a demon. It's about Satan having a child and it's a cartoon and it's supposed to be for adults, but you know, kids will watch any cartoon. And I think it's on Netflix and it's just, it's ridiculous. It's actually got Satan in there and evil and demons. And it is amazing what is being produced now in the popular culture. These things were always there. They were hidden on a back alley somewhere. Now it's mainstream. Uh, Six, access to non-Christian images, worldviews, philosophies, religions. It's looking more like Rome and, and ancient Greece where these things were on every street corner. When you walk down the street and your kids had to see all this immorality, not just with the people, but with the signs and the statues and the, the things written on the, the buildings. It's everywhere. And so it's hard to even go down the highway now without seeing billboards, hoping that your kids just don't look over there and don't see it. And even a, like a fertility clinic I just saw the other day on 1604 had these you know swimming things in the screen there. And it's bright and it's on the side of the building now. And it's just, think, I'm thinking... Yeah, that's biology, but they they mean to catch people's attention with that. Uh, Where was I? Seven. There's going to be more than seven. I see some more coming up here, so sorry about that. Loss of faith in Christian youths. Uh, The Christian youth culture. Uh, They grow up, they say they're Christians, and then they go into the world and reject it completely. Reject it completely. They say, I've got a better worldview now. I have what my college professor gave me. Or now I'm on my own, I can live as I want. And often they'll say this, and I don't always know if it's true or they're just making it up, but I think in many cases it is. They'll say, I had questions in my time as a teenager and my church couldn't answer it. My pastor couldn't answer it. My parents couldn't answer my questions. Therefore, it must not be true. The Bible must all be false. And it'll be sometimes big questions like, what about evil? And sometimes just... Basic stuff, like uh, if Jesus said, love our enemies, why is our nation going to war? And so you have to have the ability to answer those questions. We want our, our teens to leave and go on their own and still love the Lord and still subscribe to the truth of Scripture. Well, you might say, well, we, we believe in election, we believe in predestination, so they weren't chosen to begin with. That's true, that's true. But I would rather my my unbelieving adult child be going to a church and listening to the gospel, hopefully, than completely rejecting it and running from it. Um, and so this is an issue. Eight, government restrictions on religion. Increasingly, governments are making it harder for Christians to express their faith and have a voice in society. There's shutdowns happening. I added that, of course. There's shutdowns happening all over the world still. Our missionary in Chile cannot even have a full room of, what is it, 100 people, I think, Rodrigo? They have to knock it down to 50%. And if everybody's not vaccinated, they have to go 50% of that. And at some point, they just don't even care and they're just going to meet. Number nine, Islam. It continues to grow while Christians are persecuted. Islam is continuing to grow. There's theological issues within the church. Legalistic attacks, theological factions. Counseling methods are going worldly. And then there's false teachers within Christianity. you got to be ready for that. There's false teachers coming at you within Christianity. 
So we have to be ready to make a defense. What about our area? Let's look at what it shows, first of all, in America. Top priorities for evangelization. 73% are saying they're non-religious. Um, percent saying it is a top priority. Okay, this is, sorry, this is people who say, who are we evangelizing? They're saying the non-religious, 73%. The Muslims, 59% said that as well. Uh, Buddhists, 39 These are old stats, but the, I looked them up. They're still not providing uh, that many updated stats. This is from Pew Research. I think it's 2010. Uh, Hindus, Jews, non-evangelical Christians, and Catholics. If they ask us, we'd probably uh, be a little bit different on some of those. But let's look at just our area. 2010, this is the most recent ones. I, I couldn't find 2020 with the uh, ARDA. I think it's American Religious Demographics Association or something like that. Um, who's in our area? This is, a, I think, a 30-mile radius around our church. Roman Catholics. 554,000 adherents to Roman Catholics within 30 miles of this building. Southern Baptists. Um, we'll, we'll give them... Of course, the benefit of the doubt, because they do have the gospel stated, but we often know many Southern Baptists and whole churches who have gone woke and they preach a very different gospel, a very different gospel. Many still preach the true gospel. Uh, Non-denominational, this would include us, but it also includes Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, anybody who doesn't belong to one of the mainline uh, denominations. The United Methodist Church, and they've separated out the Mormons on this one because there's so many around here, 26,000 Mormons in a 30-mile radius. You know, they, they love to come to Bernie. Why do they love to come to Bernie? It's a nice family environment, safe area. Back when we planted the church, that's when I did a lot of these stats originally. I was, I was making the case over at Kerrville that we needed a church plant here. And I used these same stats because they were in 2010. I said, they're on their third, what they call a ward. Every 500 Mormons, they create a new ward. And that, that's a, a service that meets at a different time. And so they were on their third one, which meant they had around 1,500, um, I think it's families or, or maybe, it's probably not families, it's probably total people coming to their, um, what do they call it? Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So you're going to run into these people. Raise your hand if you run into anybody that fits these groups. Let's... Take off Southern Baptists, take off non-denominational. Catholics are United Methodists, very liberal denomination. Um, the Mormons, they have many heresies that we'll probably get into later. Top five changes in religious groups from 2000 to 2010. So who's increasing? Who's on the rise? This is Kendall County, Texas, and Bear County, Texas, and Gillespie County. So about a, about a 30 to 40 mile radius here. Medina County, I just grouped together some counties here that are local to us. Muslims on the rise. Look at the change on the right-hand column. 542% increase in Muslims in that 10-year span. This ended in 2010, these stats do. I don't know what it is today. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. 152% increase. This is our area. Our area is ripe for evangelism. Assemblies of God, Church of God, Seven-day Adventists. Especially number four and five uh, have all kinds of issues, all kinds of things we need to defend the faith against. And sometimes even Assemblies of God. But these, I didn't select uh, ones that necessarily have bad doctrine, although these do. Um, I'm looking at just what are the top five growing beliefs in our area. So you can see that's where we're at right now. Why do we need to do evangelism? Why do we need to do apologetics? That's why. And that's 2010. The next 12 years, I think you're going to see the same trends continuing. A good book, I'm going to try to recommend these at the end of every slide set. A good book to get on apologetics is Always Ready, Directions for Defending the Faith. So this is Greg Bonson, Dr. Greg Bonson. He'll come up many times in our talks on apologetics. Uh, he is an academic. He has a Ph.D. He taught in colleges, universities. He, I think he has his Ph.D. in philosophy. So know that when you're reading it. But he does a, a very good job of going through Acts 17 and just showing how Paul used apologetics 
when he was talking to the Greeks there. So get it, read it if you're really interested in apologetics. All right, any questions on what, what is apologetics? You guys know it all. You ready? Ready for the quiz, right? Let's, let's hear one good definition. What is apologetics? Who's got it? What is it? You're here to learn about it. You're here to do it. What is it? Jason? Giving a defense for the faith? Okay. Over here? Defending the faith? Okay. Right. And how are we going to do that? Well, that's today's. That's today's, right? In general, I've already told you somewhat. We're going to demolish the stronghold that they have and then proclaim the truth to them. That's, that's basic. Uh, let's look at the different views. How do we defend the faith? How do we do it? And there's generally, there's five different views, um, five different ways. There's probably been more than that at certain times, and, th- and there's always these little offshoots. But if you picked up this book here, five views on apologetics, they're going to list the, the main five that are used today. The main five. So the first of all, the first one is the classical method. The classical method. It uses two steps to defend the faith. There's two steps. One is prove God and then tell them about what God has done through Christ and the, the resurrection and the cross and so on. So here's the main idea of classical. And you, you've probably come across this if you did much reading or talk to people about apologetics. The classical apologetics seeks to first establish there is a theistic universe. Remember that word, theistic. A theistic universe in order to establish the possibility, there's another word, an identity of miracles. The basic argument of the classical apologist is that it makes no sense, they say, to speak about the resurrection as an act of God unless, as a logical prerequisite, it is first established that there is a God who can act. This is Norm Geisler. He would be a classical apologist, or was, before he died. So the, it's a two-step process, and really their whole focus is on just proving God. But notice theistic. Theistic. Theistic is not the God of Scripture. It's just it's proving that there is a God. It's a possibility is often what they're trying to prove. Uh, you can't know anything with, with certainty, they say, but it's a possibility. Most of these classical apologists believe the existence of God must be proven first. So that's their first goal. And then they believe in using philosophy often to do that. Use the worldly philosophy or the ancient, often ancient Greek philosophy to make arguments to a person. Uh, They attempt to show that Christianity is consistent with science as well. So most of their arguments to prove God will come from philosophy or science. And they will use those two things as ultimately an authority to show you and convince you that God exists or a God exists. Here's some philosophical proofs that they use. And you've if you've studied apologetics, you've heard of this. Uh, we're not going to go too deep into this. Some of these are, are challenging even to understand. But, but here's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. There's four proofs they often use that are a philosophical proof. Where did all this come from? That's the cosmological argument. Cosmos in Greek means world or universe. Where did all this come from? If there is no God, who brought this into creation? Okay, We've probably all heard that one, right? teleological argument or proof. You would say to the unbeliever, where did all this order and beauty come from? So it's not just who created it or how did it become, uh, how did it come into existence, but why is it beautiful? Why is there order? Why are there things with a purpose? That's what teleos means. It means purpose. Uh, Kind of the idea of a plan. A designer must exist since the universe And living things exhibit marks of design, consistency, unity, and pattern. So there's a whole uh, Christian movement that focuses on this. Y'all know what that's called? Intelligent design. Intelligent design. The idea is there's an intelligent designer, and we can show that through the studies of, of science in the world that we've done. Ontological proof. This is a fun one philosophically, and I'll, I'll let you go home and uh, meditate on this for a few months. 
Uh, if we can conceive of the greatest possible being, then it must exist, right? Whatever, I mean, it's very simplistic. If you, if you go back and read Anselm, he actually says a lot more than this, but this is how people use it today. If we can conceive, whatever we can conceive of, the greatest and most beautiful and most blessed being, well, obviously that must be God. That proves that there is a God. And then the moral proof, all people recognize some sense of right and wrong. So how do we know what evil is? Why do we fear death? Why do we fear judgment? What are we scared of if there's not a right and a wrong? And if there is a right and a wrong, how did that come to be throughout the world? Anybody heard of these before? Just a few apologetics nerds in the room. Well, these are good as far as they go, but they don't go far enough. Um, Let's talk about some objections to these. Okay, something, someone created the universe. That just proves the first cause. Aristotle, Plato, all the Greeks could agree with that. Every religion that, that believes in some supreme being believes in that. So what are we really doing? if we can convince them that there's a creator God. Uh, the teleological proof. It, it, it proves that there's a God who shaped the world. That's any supreme being of any religion. A Native American religion could believe that. Hindus, Buddhists. If you're talking to a Muslim and you say, look at all the beauty and the order in the world. They're going to say, you're right. Allah created that. Ontological proof. Many things exist, but the question isn't, can it exist? But what is it or who is it that exists? We have to get very specific if we're going to defend the faith, not just the existence of a creator being. And the moral proof, while this is the best of these proofs, many will say that morality exists to further evolutionary demands, desires. I left off the last word there. But um, this, this proof actually is found in Romans 1. But they don't use it like that. They're just using it to think of, there's a creator out there, obviously, because we all know right from wrong. Well, the Bible says you know right from wrong because the God of the Bible put that in your heart. So we've got to get more specific. But, but the moral proof is a, is a better, I think, proof than the, the top three. Who holds to classical method of apologetics? And I'll come back later, maybe talk about, if we have time today, uh, where these can be useful uh, but not, not necessarily with an unbeliever. Who holds to this today? Uh, R.C. Sproul would be a, a more modern example. J.P. Moreland, he's more academic and written some books. William Lane Craig, who's known as a Christian philosopher. And uh, he's make, they're often making philosophy and reason and science the ultimate truth. Um, and I respect R.C. Sproul. Not so much William Lane Craig, because he goes off into the weeds on some strange doctrine. Uh, Norman Geisler, who's already passed away. From the past, the men who use this, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, B.B. Warfield. This is why it's called classical, because it goes back some time in church history. And I respect R.C. Sproul, but uh, you know, sometimes I can disagree with him as well. So uh, <laughs> There's this most famous, famous quote, I think, uh, at least in today's... Uh, time. So let's just talk about overall weaknesses of the whole method. It, first of all, lacks the fact that sin has a negative effect on the unbeliever's heart and mind. You're trying to convince them of something, and you're saying, here's the proofs and here's the evidence, but their heart and mind has been affected, the Bible says. They can't even think logically. Christians have a hard enough time thinking logically and rationally. And we're expecting unbelievers who are suppressing the truth to think logically. Their mind has been darkened, Paul says in Romans 1 and Ephesians 2. Their heart has been darkened. They turned away from the truth. Secondly, this method focuses on the mind too much. And and unbelief in the Bible is a heart issue, according to Romans 1. It's, It's your heart. Your mind knows there's a God exists in your heart, or we could say the will is resisting, suppressing, turning away from. Thirdly, the Word of God is not present in this method. People often think, well, how can that be? I mean, we're talking R.C. Sproul and Augustine and all these. It's not based on the Word of God. It's based on a philosophical proof. The idea that they're trying to get across is that the other person doesn't believe in the Word of God, so why would you use the Word of God? We're going to go to a neutral place and use reason. 
Because everyone can think there's a right and wrong, of course, in the world. Um, I have an issue with that. Setting aside the Word of God is, that's our best tool, the Bible says. That's our best weapon. And why would we do that? It's really the only one you can use in this situation. Uh, It appeals to reason apart from the Bible. Similar to the setting aside the Bible. It's appealing to reason, though. And it, it really, ultimately, if you get down to the bottom of it, it makes man's reason the ultimate judge of truth. Okay? It makes man's reason the ultimate judge of truth. I'm trying to convince you of something. This is reasonable. This is logical. Of course, you can agree with that. Look at the creation. It had to come into existence. And ultimately, if they accept that, it's based on their own judge of truth, not an absolute truth or an absolute judge, we might say, who's given us an absolute truth. Fifthly, even when it comes to proving God's existence, these classical apologetics can only speak of the probability or likelihood of God. A likelihood, probability, certainty. It, it's, they, don't, they don't even, um, this is not an issue for them. They just say, we can't know this with absolute certainty. That's not their goal. Their goal is not to prove God with absolute certainty. Their goal is to make it probable, very likely get you to believe that it's very likely, of course, that there would be a God. And by the way, these, these are um, weaknesses that I got from my seminary class, Dr. Michael Vlock. Uh, most of these are. I've added a few to them. But uh, Number six, man already knows in his heart that there is a God. Romans 1, 19 through 21 says it. It says it cl- clearly. Everyone knows there is a God because he's made himself known to them. So trying to prove that there's just a God only is just trying to convince them of what they already know. Think about it. You're going to spend how much time trying to convince them of something that the Bible says they already know? They already know this. It's not, it's not in the sense like, I know something, but I've forgotten it. No, it, they, they know it all the time. They're always knowing that there is a God, if I could say it like that. They're just always suppressing it. They've built up this barrier. They've built up this wall. And so the goal is not to try to convince them of something they already know. It's to help them break down that wall. And we do that with the Word of God. So there's six weaknesses. I like what the uh, reform guy from the late 1800s, Herman Bavink, said. Even in his day, he said, apologetics, as it has often been practiced, he's talking about the classical method. It was mistaken. And he gives three reasons in the quote. I've broken those out. It detached itself from the Christian faith and thus put itself outside of, above, and before theology. So it said, let's set, the, let's set the Bible and the faith aside and let's talk neutrally over here and let's use reason and the mind. And that's putting it outside of theology or before theology or even above theology. He said, secondly, it, it's so separated believing from knowing that religious truth came to rest in part or in toto. In toto, that's not the little dog who wants to go to Kansas or... Uh, the rains down in Africa. This is total. It's just a Latin word for saying in total. So in part, or in the total amount, he's saying, is purely intellectual. It's all about the mind, intellectual proofs. It separated out this idea we have to believe. And thirdly, as a result, it began to foster exaggerated expectations from its scientific labor, as though by the intellect it could change the human heart and by reasoning engender piety. So that if you want to get better at the classical method, you need to study philosophy more. You need to study reasoning more. You need to study logic more. You need to study things that might be okay to study. But if your goal is to convince the other person that there is a God, you're going to work on getting sharp in those areas. And it's, it's pulling it away from the heart. It's pulling it away from, from piety, from godliness, from holiness. Any questions on the classical method? I mean, again, this is not a salvation issue. We're not talking, although I think William Lane Craig has come up with some heretical stuff. Um, we're not talking, if you have a disagreement on these five views, you're, you're not a Christian or a group of people aren't Christian. These are ways that Christians have thought about it, but I think it's uh, not a good way with this first one here. Neither is the second one a great way, evidential method. This is the most popular method you're going to run across today. If you haven't read much on apologetics, and just heard about it, this is probably the kind that you've heard about. It's similar to classical apologetics in that it uses various positive and negative arguments. Positive argument is 
They're trying to make the case for something in negative, saying, well, why, why don't we have these things? And your, your view doesn't account for these things. Uh, along with philosophy and historical arguments. The key difference is they're using the idea of miracles. It's, this is more of a one-stop shop. This isn't multiple steps. This isn't some long philosophical argument. Here's the main idea. Evidentialism focuses on the legitimacy of accumulating various evidences for the truth of Christianity. The reason it's called evidential is because it's all about evidences. So the idea is, let me give you evidence, and you can be the judge. Let me give you enough evidence, and you will judge, ultimately, because the evidence is overwhelming, that there is a God, and not only is there a God, but that Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave, and he's a real person. He really existed. He really did the things that the Bible says he did. And so here is uh, Gary Habermas, or Habermas, I forget how you pronounce it. He says, instead of having to prove God's existence before moving to specific evidences, that's the two-step method, the evidentialist treats one or more historical arguments as being able to both to indicate God's existence and activity and to indicate which variety of theism is true. So they're skipping the prove God exists and going straight to, if we can convince a person of this miracle, of the resurrection, usually that's the one, and then obviously there must be a God. I mean, if there's a resurrection... There must be a God. And uh, I, that's true. I mean, obviously, if, if Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible's true, then there must be a creator God. The problem is, I think, well, we'll come to weaknesses, but they're not saying uh, the Bible assumes there is a God. They're just reasoning, again, through the mind, that if we can prove this happened, then there must be a cause for that somewhere behind it. So it's a one-step method. It's caught on. It's a very popular method because it's much easier I mean, who wants to study philosophy and the arguments of Anselm and the ontological proof and all that? I mean, this is easy. It's just, let me show you the historical documentation. Let me show you the scientific research. Uh, very popular today. Has been uh, since I've been a Christian. Uh, many of these books were very popular. Uh, I read Elise Strobel, uh, Josh McDowell, Gary Habermas. The three big names. I read Case for Christ. Anybody read that? When I was first saved, I read Case for Christ. There's a movie now, I heard it's pretty good, that came out uh, by Lee Strobel. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote a lot of books. Here's, again, the idea, uh, evidence that demands a verdict. This is why it's called evidential. Uh, new evidence that demands a verdict. And then he wrote later with his son, who's gone and gotten his PhD, and, and they write together now. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict. And then the case for Christ. So there's, there's a case we can make, and it's got all this evidence. And then... Uh, Probably the, the, the best title to understand this by Gary Habermas, The Verdict of History, Conclusive Evidence for the Life of Jesus. So the evidence is conclusive. And as believers, we would say, well, obviously it is conclusive. I mean, there's tons of evidence for Jesus. As believers, we would say that. That's the key there. Weaknesses. Well, the same as we just talked about, the weakness. Uh, that we talked about in the classical method, especially ignoring the fact that sin has affected the mind. So what if you can give the best evidence in the world if the person's mind is affected by sin? And you already know this because you've talked to unbelievers and you've told them something that's an obvious truth and they won't, they won't believe it. They will not accept it. Why? Because they love their sin. I mean, if you love something so much and your whole life was invested in that and that's all you wanted to do and some new idea came at you that would completely destroy that, even if it was the best idea in the world, you're still going to love your sin. Without God's grace, you're going to love your sin. So it, it does not take into account what the Bible says, that sin has affected our ability to reason. We often think of sin and the lust of the flesh and things like that. Yes, but it's affected the mind. You cannot reason rightly. Not, not that you can't do algebra, but you can't make a logical deduction that involves some moral aspect that would call you a sinner or prove something you don't want to believe. Secondly, scientific and historical evidence can be interpreted by the unbeliever to support their view because a scientist or historian has his own presuppositions. He's already decided there's not a God. So any evidence that he finds is going to just prove that case. He's already decided that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So the evidence that you think is wonderful, he thinks is supporting his view. 
And I, this is one that I added in. Actually, number two and three here. Um, number three, it becomes a contest. Oh, yeah, you've got evidence? We, we've all done this, right? You've got evidence? Let me, get, let me show you my evidence. And then you're going to go back home and research some more. And you're going to buy this book. And you're going to buy that book. And, and you're going to look online and find every single argument. If they've got 99, you're going to have 100. And they're going to have 110. And it just becomes this sort of thing. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's a weakness. Because you're not really getting anywhere. Uh, does it have benefits to the Christian? Yes. We'll come back to that next week. Third, cumulative case. Cumulative case. Uh, this is similar to evidential. It's also an easier method in the classical. Uh, the cumulative case, and these are terms that they've given their, themselves. Their own camp has given. These aren't terms that I've given it or those outside their camp. Uh, so the cumulative case says the case for Christianity is not based on any formal argument. You don't need to reason. You don't need to say, first there is a God, now you can believe in the resurrection. Or you don't need to say, look at all this evidence for the resurrection. Here, here's the one proof of the resurrection. That in the second century, uh, the evidentialists would say, the second century, people are already talking about Jesus who died in Jerusalem. He existed. He's real. The cumulative case says we don't have to go step by step by step. We'll just throw everything at them, and it'll, it'll be overwhelming is the idea. I mean, it's overwhelming, a cumulative case. It is an informal argument that pieces together several lines or types of data into a sort of hypothesis or theory that comprehensively explains that data and does so better than alternative hypothesis. So here's all the proof of everything about Christianity, and it just becomes overwhelming. It's like a lawyer who's making his case, but he's not making his case by saying, A turns to B, turns to C, goes to D. You're just saying, look at all this circumstantial evidence. Obviously, the person's guilty. Or a historian who writes a book, and each chapter focuses on a different method that proves their point. Or maybe somebody who looks at literature and says, all of this literature, not the Bible, of course, but they would say an interpretation of literature with, with all the sub-arguments built into the literature. So it's similar to that. Uh, the main idea, Christianity makes better sense of all the evidence than does any other alternative world, worldview. So it makes better sense with everything. We're not asking you to, to reason. And so this is, is much easier in a sense. You just give them C.S. Lewis's books, you know, just read this. I mean, he's just throwing everything at you. And by the way, he's the, the most famous uh, cumulative case, probably the one who started this. Not, not that he called it that or knew necessarily that he was starting something new. More modern, John Feinberg. Uh, John Feinberg's a scholar. Um, uh, I, I think he's at, where is he at? Talbot, maybe, seminary? Or he was? Uh, his dad is actually the, the mentor of John MacArthur in seminary at Talbot. Uh, Feinberg's come to Master's Seminary and taught some electives on ethics and such. Uh, so again, this isn't like, you know, the guy disagrees with, with my view, so he's out uh, of Christianity. It's not that at all. Feinberg's written some good theological tomes, but he is more of the uh, cumulative case. So, so his book, The Many Faces of Evil, uh, is, is a cumulative case for God and, and the problem of evil. Uh, more academic, can you believe it's true? Christian apologetics in a modern and postmodern era. Uh, Feinberg, he has a lot of philosophy in his argument as well. So he's using every tool out there. Uh, if you wanted to learn more about the cumulative case, I wouldn't start with him. I'd start more with the, the, the old-fashioned C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Anybody read this? Okay. So that's a cumulative case, right? Each chapter or groups of chapters are focused on different things. He's just bringing out all the evidence that he that came about in his own conversion and, and time uh, teaching. The problem of pain, that's a big issue. Why is there suffering in the world? If there's a God, then why is there suffering in the world? So he, he works through this, and uh, he went through pain as well in his own life, so he can talk about this. And, and, and doesn't go to Scripture to make his case, although he might cite things that are in Scripture. He's making more of a, an experiential case. God in the dock. Um, by the way, these are, these are helpful. You should probably read these. I mean, these are helpful for the Christian to understand his faith better. Not that C.S. Lewis had everything right. Please don't, don't read him as, as the Bible or, or a systematic theology text. 
Uh, God in the dock is about how mankind puts God in the dock. And, and, and that's a British term for witness stand. Put God on the witness stand and we get to ask him all these questions. Surprised by joy. He was surprised that Christianity was uh, something about joy. The Pilgrim's Regress. So he takes the idea of Pilgrim's Progress. This was his first book that he published. And it sort of opens up this cumulative case view that he has. Uh, the Pilgrim's Regress. Uh, probably one of his more difficult books to read. Um, so again, these can be helpful to the Christian, the person who's already saved. These can be um, good at thinking through why you believe what you believe. And that might in turn help you defend the faith. But there are some weaknesses to the cumulative case as well. Same as above, sets aside the idea that the mind has been affected by sin. And a major issue is the heart, not just the mind. And so anytime we forget about that and set that aside, we're trying to give people evidence that they can't really handle rightly. If, if everything was neutral, then maybe we could make a case and we would expect the other person to logically follow our case and agree. But is everything neutral? No, it's not. Not since the fall. It's not neutral. There is no neutral. Too many times we think, well, they're not an unbeliever, but they're not a Christian. What's that category? There, there's not. Jesus said, you're with me or you're against me. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. You're a genuine believer or you're not a believer. That's not our category. That's biblical categories. Uh, secondly, so what good if any, this is just a question that we need to look at then. Of all the things I've talked about so far, what good are these? Proofs, evidences. It further confirms your faith. If you're a Christian and you're growing in the faith and you're reading these Christian authors, and this is going to sound great. Obviously, now our mind has been changed. Our heart has been renewed. This evidence, I can't believe. I mean, there's early Christian church history writings. And there's, there's Roman pagans who are talking about Jesus and that he existed. And there's, there's, there's Greek writings that are, that are looking uh, back to Christ. And there's philosophers referring to him. And of course, something, someone made this world. And of course, it's beautiful. But see, as a Christian, we know this. And so all those arguments can be filtered through the correct lens. So the believer can build up their faith. It can also be useful even in dismantling others' arguments. It's not going to bring them to saving faith. It's not going to help them believe in Scripture or the gospel. But if they have some strong fortress of speculation, some of these can, can throw pot shots in a spiritual, theological way. Uh, they can be extra ammunition that you might need to dismantle their argument. But ultimately, remember, the Bible is the ultimate truth. That's our weapon. Uh, thirdly, evidence and philosophy cannot be used to prove God's existence. Cannot be used to prove the Bible's true. Cannot be used to prove with 100% certainty Christ's resurrection. Because they are not the ultimate source of truth. That's what it comes down to with all of these methods. What is the ultimate source of truth? It's the Bible. It's God. It's His Word. And we have no other ultimate source of truth. And so anything we use to argue with an unbeliever, it's eventually going to get back to, well, this is man's best attempt. Okay, last slide, because this is one slide. Uh, this is newer Reformed epistemology method. It sounds very awesome. It sounds great. But it is a lot of philosophy. Um, so if they're not using philosophy as the ultimate source of truth, but they're using philosophy to kind of formulate this. The main idea, belief in God is properly basic. That's a philosophical term. They're not saying Romans 1 says that. And does not require the support of evidence or argument. So set aside evidence, set aside arguments. Everybody knows there is a God, obviously. We're created beings. Belief in God comes naturally to all human beings and needs no rational defense in order to be believed. So again, it's, it's naturally there. Uh, they work on positive arguments for Christianity that are not necessary uh, for rational faith. The focus of Reformed epistemology is, I'm sorry, is on negative or defensive apologetics. So they don't focus on the positive. Don't prove that there's God. They're just showing that other people's views aren't rational. They aren't correct. Uh, Kelly James Clark, Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff. You've probably never heard of these guys. And if you want to read their stuff, uh, have fun. Uh, tell, me, tell me what you think because it's not easy. And 
They make some good, good, good arguments for believers, but uh, it is very philosophical. They're all, they're all analytical philosophers, if you know anything about that. They're all analytical philosophers. Okay, next week, number five, the view that we use here, that we teach here, that we practice here, even in the preaching and teaching, presuppositional method. So we don't have time for that. We're already three minutes over. That's all next week. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning. It has blessed us, I hope, Lord, that we've understood your word is the ultimate, the ultimate truth, the absolute truth. We really can't make any arguments that are better than yours. And yours are um, the perfect thing that we need to get across the truth to the world. So make us sharp in that. Help us to know our Bibles well and to argue from it. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.